0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm
0: Adam Kempinar. Why did you come here? I work for my uncle. You scared of him? Oh, he's he's the nicest man in the world. The Osage. Their time is over. We got to take
1: back control of our home. De Niro, DiCaprio, and relative newcomer for most audiences, Lily Gladstone, there in Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which offers a grim meditation on a tragic
0: American chapter. A grim meditation that may just be the latest Scorsese masterpiece in a long career that's full of them. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's probably worth acknowledging, Josh, that this episode is dropping the weekend before Halloween. And typically, we've programmed some kind of horror theme for these shows, a sacred cow or a top five. Maybe we last did it in 2020 with our top five high-concept horror movies. And if there was ever a year to return to that format, it would be this one when you've got your new book out, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. So my question is, is this a bigger failure by me or by you?
1: Well, we were ahead of this, right? We did our top five jump scares, horror jump scares, True. I think, in August, because that's about the time the book actually became available. So I like to look at it that way. We were just ahead of the game, giving giving the real horror diehards uh, an early sense of the season. Why aren't we just replaying that now? <laughs> I mean, we could. It's a little quick for a
0: repeat. I, don't, I I think we usually wait a little longer before we do that. Well, fear not. We actually do have a horror themed conversation coming. It will only be available to members of the Film Spotting family, though, those who get our bonus shows. After we record this episode, Josh, we're going to get together with producer Sam Van Halgren and listener Mike Merrigan, the godfather of Film Spotting Madness. He's in Dover, New Hampshire. He is going to join us for a horror movie draft. He is not only the godfather of Film Spotting Madness, he won. The tournament, the bracket contest last year and his prize chosen by him was to be part of a horror draft with us. I am pretty excited about this, actually.
1: Yeah, let's let's be clear. Chosen by him, this is not mm-hmm. something we're afflicting him with. My only hope is that Mike knows even less than me about the mechanics of draft order <laughs> and all those things. So, fa- uh-huh. so finally, so
0: I won't look as confused as I usually do. Look for that bonus episode before Halloween. And if you'd like more information about becoming a member of the Film Spotting Family, visit filmspottingfamily.com. Now let's turn to a frightening
1: story of a very different kind, Killers of the Flower Moon. Blame it on our recent Blind Cow review of The Last Waltz, Adam. Coming out of Killers of the Flower Moon, director Martin Scorsese's adaptation of the David Grand non-fiction book about a series of murders among the Osage people of 1920s Oklahoma, I was mesmerized, maybe above all, by Robbie Robertson's score. You just heard a bit from Osage Oil Boom there. We lost Robertson, of course, just a few months ago. He was a driving force of the band whose final concert was documented by Scorsese in 1978's The Last Waltz. That film... Didn't turn me into a band convert, necessarily, but this killer's score might retroactively do that on its own, with its slippery grooves and sinuous bass lines. Even before Leonardo DiCaprio's Ernest Burkhart was called a snake by another character, I had jotted in my notes something about how the music sounded like a snake in the grass with a rhythm you shouldn't trust. And that's fitting, because it turns out we can't entirely trust Ernest a white World War I veteran looking to start a new life amidst the oil boom on Osage land. Nor can we trust his uncle, played by Robert De Niro. William King Hale is a neighboring businessman and rancher who presents himself as a generous benefactor to the Osage, helping them to move, along with their newfound wealth, into modernity. Nevertheless, a young Osage woman named Molly, played by Lily Gladstone, falls for Ernest's blue eyes, and his genuine desire to settle into a quiet domestic life. She rejects that description of him as a snake in one scene, saying he more resembles a coyote, and they marry. From there, we get many things, an almost Hitchcockian love story, a violent crime drama of the sort Scorsese is mostly associated with a reckoning with this particular patch of American history, but also a reckoning with the native experience in the United States ever since white people first settled, or should I say slithered onto the land. Let's start small though, Adam, and build out from there. Now, at the risk of opening this up to another 30 minute monologue on the band, I am dying (laughs) to know what you thought in particular about Robertson's score. And beyond that, was there another specific detailed element of the filmmaking that grabbed you here? Something that is probably always going to come to mind fairly quickly
0: after someone mentions Killers of the Flower Moon. And here I was going to take full credit for your response to this movie after spending so much time extolling Robbie Robertson's virtues as a musician in (laughs) that last month's conversation. I do want to mention here, you may be aware, Josh, but I'm not sure if all of our listeners are aware that... This wasn't a choice by Martin Scorsese simply because he's had a long standing friendship and working collaboration with Robbie Robertson. Robertson grew up on the Six Nations Reserve in Canada. His mother was Cayuga and Mohawk. So these sounds are sounds emanating from a knowing, mournful place, from a deep connection to Indigenous people and their suffering. It's not really surprising that the music is such a standout part of this film and on the soundtrack there's an intro that precedes that song you played the Osage oil boom it's called the Sacred Pipe it's 35 seconds long or so but Osage oil boom is the first time in the movie you're distinctly aware of the score and i was instantly hooked <laughs> that that steady propulsion And the texture of the drums the texture of the guitars how low and growly the bass and guitar are and how they complement each other if you listen back to the guitar playing i don't think he plays any individual notes it's these very intricate chords which isn't to say they're like jazz voicings or anything but they're intricate in that there's many notes being hit at once And this moment in the film is a moment of reverie. And it would be inaccurate to say that the music completely belies that reverie. It would also be inaccurate to say it completely affirms the reverie. Like every facet of this film, it's layered, it's evocative. You feel every note of it. I think of it like an elongated moan. But you might describe it totally differently because there is something elusive about it too just as powerful for me I'm going to single out another element of the score that heartbeat theme Mm -hmm. Niyukanska Mm -hmm. that alternate title or after the hyphen in the title Niyukanska that's Osage the original name People of the Middle Waters. And again, it's that steady propulsion. The bass here only, no drums. The bass providing that beat with that flute over the top, almost chaotic. It's wild sounding, but over that repetitive beat, there's no easily identifiable melody to this track. And yet, for two days after I saw the movie, I was randomly humming this song, which meant I was. Walking around humming a bass playing quarter notes, (laughs) you know, has to be the first time in my life I've ever done that. And what that repetition evoked for me, I like you referring to it like a snake slithering. What it evoked for me was a sense of creeping, inevitable dread. Yeah. That the Osage and perhaps some non-Osage characters are ensnared in something there is no escaping from. Like... Not a snake, maybe, but some kind of monster that's lurking, always lurking, moving closer. And as we know from some horror movies, sometimes the monster is already inside the house. In terms of the filmmaking, I think we'll explore this more as we get into spoiler territory, which we are going to get to later in this conversation. The true wonder of it, for me, of Killers of the Flower Moon, is less about specific camera choices and scene construction. Some of the breakdowns we might do with other really memorable moments in Scorsese films. It's more about the accumulated weight of his overall storytelling approach. That said, there is an incredible sequence late in the film that depicts a very different kind of reverie. It's an eerie, demonic sort of fever dream. I wish desperately I had a chance to rewatch it and I could really try to clearly discuss it. But this is my recollection of it and what it what it prompted within me to feel. It's the sequence, Josh, where Scorsese cross cuts and I'm going to put an asterisk there. He cross cuts between two different events. Well, really, three happening in two distinct locations. Again, this is my memory of it. And if I'm getting any of the details a little bit hazy, please correct me. In one, a character is alone in a room, highly medicated, caught in this netherworld between life and death. Another character is in the same house, largely responsible for putting that character into this compromised state. The other space is this expanse of land and people with fields being burned at night. It's a fiery glow straight out of Malick's Days of Heaven. It is. Except, it's not that these scenarios are necessarily unfolding simultaneously, but separately, Scorsese somehow renders them as if they're almost occurring together. <laughs> the, the burning fields encroaching on the other character's space, like it's the, the backdrop. And here we go back to the use of music. The song that's playing is Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. There's no lyrics. It's, it's his humming and his guitar playing. But that's the soundtrack here. Mm -hmm. Knowing that this couldn't have been just by accident, I mean, who's more purposeful about picking music of any kind in movies than Martin Scorsese? This is a song that was inspired by a classic hymn, about the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this scene is a physical and spiritual agony being potently put before us. Also, if you want to try to get a little more literal about it, we have one character who is very clearly the Christ figure. We have another who is clearly Judas the betrayer. And I think you could say the other is the devil in that fiery glow, because as Aaron Altman, in broadcast news so famously, taught us the devil doesn't have a long red ponytail. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. And you know what? This devil, this devil portrayed by Robert De Niro, never does. mm Yeah, it's a lot of bidding. It's a lot of bidding of
1: others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's the sequence I'd love to return to as well. I've only seen it once like you. Um, Further back, it's been a little bit now. But that I do want to study and follow the steps that you were describing because that fire, if I'm remembering correctly, is not taking place anywhere near the house
0: that the two characters you described are living in. That's how I'm describing it, right? Yeah, it's all... It's all in this other state, some ethereal zone.
1: Yeah, and we're told it. It you know, in the context of the actual layout of this area, we're told where it's happening.
0: Yeah, whose fields are burning?
1: But the way it is shot is Mm -hmm. that it's just outside the windows of this home, and the flames are licking at the windows, and it's almost as if. Scorsese and his team have abandoned any sense of reality Mm -hmm. at all in this point. The flames themselves, it's almost like cellophane outside the window. It has a very practical effect, stagecraft, theatrical feel to it that is apart from most of what else we get in the movie. I think this is the production design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The production design is incredible. The period costumes, all the stuff you would expect make this a, a richly- Envision piece of its time, and then you get this vision of hell, a moment of moral decision for one of the characters, as you were describing, and these flames, these these yes, demonic. And they shouldn't be as close to the house as they are. They shouldn't look like that, even if they were. It's a completely unsettling sequence. And one of the visual highlights, we should mention cinematography, Rodrigo Prieto, um, Scorsese is working with absolutely one of the standout moments. Uh just quickly to go back and and you know, tie up the 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 score. I'm so glad you highlighted the heartbeat theme. that's the other one I thought about focusing on. You know, those squeals of of the flute I think mm-hmm. you described. Yeah, that come out in that one. And then the third one, I had these three thinking, which one is more troubling in a good way is the insulin train, which has this seductive, dangerous chug to it. And I think all of these have what you were describing. Well, um, the, the quality of dread, but also being able to contain within them the entirety of the movie. So it's not like so many scores will give you, this is the peaceful moment. This is the, you know, suspenseful moment. This is the triumphant moment. This is the scariest moment. Somehow, despite being unique in each of their compositions, all of these elements of music managed to contain all of that at once. And I think that is why they stick to your gut and are so haunting, because when you are hearing them again in your head, you're essentially hearing the entire... The entire film, So, so yeah, incredible, you know, end of life work here from Robertson. It's interesting that I didn't know much about him at all, but that heritage you spoke about was one of the things that that I did know uh, about his work and that he did incorporate, I think, even more in his, you know, later career work. Um, that was an influence on his music. So very, just very cool that it all comes together here, that Scorsese would land on this project and already have been a collaborator with him for so many years um, and could use him here. Mm-hmm. Another visual touch I want to talk about, though, are the visions, which, um, you know, just describing the theatricality of that fire scene, I realized maybe the visions could have been depicted that way, but these are actually fairly reality-based as well. Um, we get two of them from Molly's mother. She has a vision of an owl early on that's presaging death. And then we actually, this isn't you know, much of a spoiler. We understand that she's older when we first meet her, but how about that vision of her being taken away by spirits on mm-hmm. her deathbed, which does not use any theatricality or magical realism at all, right? No. Um, these traditionally dressed figures arrive and just Reach out for her hand and carry her off the bed. That was incredibly moving. and and then, yeah, that owl returns, I won't say right now when, but to see that owl return again works so well. So So the levels of imagery that we're getting um,
0: in this film, it's it's just astonishing. Mm-hmm. You get a sense that those spiritual elements and those symbolic elements are so woven into, the fabric of their lives and their culture that it makes sense that that would be seen as something very practical and just a matter of course sure that they would be interacting with with nature and with spirits potentially in that way. I wonder how you felt watching this, Josh, in terms of thinking about it as a Martin Scorsese film, apart from the craft of it and the sophistication of the craft, but if. Someone is curious how an auteur, like Martin Scorsese is, makes material his own or what draws him to certain material, the different elements and ideas in other people's work that resonate with him. And I do prefer to frame it that way versus the former because I – I don't perceive this process to be so calculated where it's like, I read this material and now I'm going to turn it into whatever I want to make it into what he finds inherently in the material that, that speaks to him. And then what inevitably does come out in the filmmaking and here, Josh, we should probably go ahead and say that if you're listening to this and you haven't yet seen killers of the flower moon and you'd want nothing about the film spoiled for you, this is your opportunity to either, turn the dial or to go ahead and fast forward to much later in the show, because this is a film we both agree can't really be discussed without getting into some of these choices and where, where the story goes and how Martin Scorsese as a director depicts it. So this is the break where we're definitely going to start getting into some elements of the film that would qualify as spoilers. Fair to say?
1: Yeah. And, and I think I would also say if you've seen the trailer, Right now, we're probably not going to get into anything that isn't already there. So there are a couple of levels here, maybe, perhaps. Um, We'll see where it goes. But
0: yeah, I think we do really have to start talking a few details at this point. Okay, so let let me say it this way. By the time we get to a scene later in the film where DiCaprio's character, Ernest, has made a deal and is ratting against Robert De Niro's character, if you hadn't made the connection already, you have to be thinking about Goodfellas, right? Mm -hmm. And there's another scene that I think comes before the courtroom scene, and I don't recall exactly how it plays out, but it's basically the scene from Goodfellas where De Niro's Jimmy Conway tries to urge Karen to go down that alley to pick up some dresses. Like, no, you'll be okay. There's, There's a mirroring of that scene here in this film. And it... It hit me, of course, you realize who is Ernest, really, but a much dimmer, more passive Henry Hill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's, he's Henry Hill if Henry was a patsy. He's a man seduced by a type of life he thinks he deserves, he thinks he's entitled to, who takes what he wants, but is also no more than a cog within a larger system in which he has little to no control. And the depth of that system is something I think Scorsese really slyly reveals over the course of the film. I'm thinking about the man, that great character actor, I'm going to have to look up his name as we're going, Josh, who Molly has to see for her money, mm-hmm. who I'm pretty sure is also revealed to be a member of the clan. And we understand that he's in on all of this, like the doctors, everybody is complicit, right? And here's where it then also dovetails with late period Scorsese. Here's where we start thinking about, or at least I couldn't help but think about the Irishman. The phrase that kept rolling around in my head during at least the last third of Flower Moon was, it is what it is. Every conversation that De Niro's Hale has with Ernest about what has to be done or is going to be done, it is what it is. Every time we see an anguish Ernest reacting to deaths that he was expecting or in some cases played a role in executing, it is what it is even on some level for the osage this this sense this is the world that they are forced to be a part of this is how we suffer we we try we act against it it seems futile how do the murders occur in this movie almost all of them gunshots sudden to the head blood spraying bodies falling It's like what we see in mob movies and maybe more startling and horrifying here because we know the environment we're in and we know the people we're around and we know we aren't watching a mob movie. They're not dramatic. They're never dramatic. There's not a single death scene here that you could describe that way. You certainly couldn't describe any death scene here as in any way cool. It's all distanced. It's dispassionate. (laughs) Like the mob always says, it's just business. It's it's never personal here in these films, and that's, that's also how dispassionately they talk about the Osage and what they're doing to them, except they don't talk about it in terms of what they're doing to them. It's more like what's happening to them yeah. <laughs> because whatever it is they're carrying out, it's their right to carry out. They're just resetting things a little bit, right? And Hale calls one of the guys he later kills and takes a life insurance policy out on. His best friend, and the thing is, Josh. In that moment, I totally believe him. It's not meant to be ironic, or it is meant to be ironic juxtaposed with what he's doing to him. But I believe that that character, that man, in his heart, genuinely yeah. believes that about. That I think person. He does too,
1: and I, I think the way he's framing it is that this is an, an inevitability. The mm-hmm. the evil way it's being justified in his mind, he explains to Ernest, is that this is the natural order That's right. of things, right? They're That's seeing it. this as a survival of the fittest situation. And in, in Hale's mind, you have to believe if he was not there at all, this would all be happening
0: anyway, because exactly.
1: it's, just, it's just the deranged order of things as he yeah. sees it.
0: Yeah, and remember what we learn in the postscript. Even after going to prison for crimes he committed against the Osage, we're told that Hale wrote letters to them and talked to them as if, on his part anyway, they were still the same friends he always purported himself to be and they believed him sincerely to be because it's not an act. It wasn't manipulative. He isn't a movie villain, nor is he even really a con man. It's something far deeper and more complex and way more sinister that we see taking place in flowers of the killer moon.
1: Yeah. It's, it's the evil of privilege essentially where you can, he can distance himself from it. Yeah,
0: Banality. Banality is the word I was thinking about a lot throughout the film. The banality of the evil we see portrayed here. It happens as if it's just part of everyday life and everyone needs to accept it. All of the decisions they make are handled or discussed in that same way. And sometimes they even, they even surprise you. They surprise you To what links they're willing to go to. But it's surprising because they discuss it in the same way they talk about going to the store to pick up some flour. So I think you're right to point
1: among Scorsese's other films to Goodfellas as the primary analog. I I would agree that became fairly clear early on that this really is. A gangster movie. You just have a Mm -hmm. different sort of organized criminality going on here, and he's going to pay attention to the to the system as well. And you know, the way I thought of Ernest in comparison to Henry Hill is that in Goodfellas, Henry Hill sort of slid into this life of crime. Right? It it was it was um, around him. It was part of the air. It was seductive. It was something he wanted. Ernest is a really tricky character, and I want to he get into more about this with you and, and see how you felt. Uh, performance is part of it, too. So we can probably talk about what DiCaprio is doing here. I regarded him once the movie was over because I never had a full handle on him the whole time. I don't mm-hmm. think we're meant to. That's not a right. criticism of DiCaprio's performance. But once it was over, I felt, you know, this guy was kind of split from the start. And um, this is almost it, it struck me that this is being captured in. DiCaprio's face, which is so pinched throughout this movie. He's smi- there are times where he's smiling when he's with yeah. Molly early on, but otherwise this face is at once pinched but also somehow ballooning at the same time, like he's gonna explode. Mm. Uh, I, I just when I wrote about, it, I described his face as a microwave popcorn bag as it's you know <laughs> swelling in there and you're just waiting for it to, to burst. I do believe that Ernest wants this quiet, settled life. Um, I think there is a side of him that genuinely desires this. And then the question is, is he too dim? I mean, the movie suggests that he's not the brightest guy, right? Is he too dim or is he just too weak to establish this life? He genuinely desires outside of his uncle's clutches. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way DiCaprio captures that is with um, impotence in some scenes, but always a simmering rage as well. Another musician here, Jason Isbell, I'm sure you spotted right away, Of course, playing uh, a supporting character. And there's this quiet conversation, Ernest and this (laughs) character have, it's it's really good, have always been at each other, right? But passive aggressively and the Isbell character, you know, says he meant no offense about something he said that was insulting. And I love how DiCaprio just says no offense taken. But then he does this like violence tinged sniff Mm -hmm. that just go, it goes on for like, 13 seconds he's just sniffing and you're waiting for some sort of explosion to come so so yeah what did what did you make of Ernest as a character and maybe this does tie back to says these other films because so often he's interested in these guys right their relationship to the systems they find themselves in but also then their free will and how it's enacted in those systems what am mm-hmm. i what am i aware of that I'm complicit in. Right. How far am I willing to go? What does that say about me? Um, I think, I think Ernest is one of the trickiest characters he's given us along these lines.
0: I would completely agree. And I think you can go so far as to say that no matter exactly where you fall on the debate that always seems to come up over and over again on social media about Scorsese glorifying gangsters or a certain type of toxic male character, there is no doubt That watching Goodfellas, you completely understand why Henry Hill is seduced by that life, and you find yourself as a viewer kind of getting sucked into it as well. And at the end, when he looks you in the eye on the stand and says, and it's all over now, and that whole bit where he laments that he now gets bad pasta sauce and he's just a schlub we all go, oh, that's kind of a bummer, isn't it? (laughs) We don't necessarily say, oh, that's what he totally deserved. We go, yeah, what a bummer. Life was so much better when you were walking in the back of the Copa and getting the best table in the house. So there is a certain glorification that inevitably comes with depicting those types of characters, no matter how anti-heroic they seem to be. This seems to be pushing the notion of an anti-hero to... To a completely new level where you're never feeling as if the life that he has chosen is a good one or that it's one that he even seems to necessarily be totally enjoying. I agree. That's the that's the look in the image that he conveys. The entire film is actually one more of anguish and one of conflict and. But you do do believe that he's happy with Molly, though, I do believe. But see, then that's the other part of it, Josh, is that I think a lot of people may watch this film and not be able to reconcile the horrible things that he does, the horrible ways he hurts Molly, and yet the way he professes to love her and seems to show that he loves her. And I think that inability to reconcile that is precisely the point. And that is speaking to your larger notion of just how tricky... This character is how complex this character is that even in a moment where we see him reacting to two deaths multiple deaths that were instigated by him and in a more direct way than some of the other deaths we've seen like he didn't physically go lay the bomb there at the house but he did tell the people to go put the bomb there right Mm -hmm. He gave that instruction, and yet we still see his response. And it's not a case where I think Scorsese wants us to necessarily identify with him or certainly to have empathy with him. But we see that as consistent with his character, where I'm not sure he had totally thought through the the consequences or the full ramifications of the things he was doing. I think this is a film, Josh, where you have a lot of characters, and this will get to something we talk about probably closer to the end of our conversation maybe in the next part i think you have a lot of characters who are very comfortable providing narratives for themselves to deal with the actions they take and to deal with what they see happening around them and to sometimes make themselves feel better about what they're doing and sometimes it's just an act of denial it's sort of just pretending that well i didn't I didn't physically do that, or he's taking care of that, and I i wasn't involved, even though he is part of this web. It's what you tell yourself. We have characters who are constantly in this film choosing to see and hear exactly what they want to see and hear. Literally every conversation that happens between De Niro's character and DiCaprio's character is a version of that. Yeah,
1: yeah and I think... <laughs> The case with Ernest White, it is a little bit more of a challenge is because the, again, it's not a slide. The The two sides are so stark. So when he, the first time, and I think it's where he arranges or agrees to arrange to the murder of one of Molly's sisters, to me, that was like, that was like a switch had been flipped in a way. And it really is almost a split personality performance that, um you know, could also make sense, but I think it's a different psychology at work than what Hale is convincing himself of. And I think that's why there's anguish for Ernest because, um, you know, the line Hale is selling, which he himself buys. I don't know that Ernest ever completely even comprehends it. I agree. And so that's maybe why he's struggling more. Mm -hmm. Um, now, you know, we, We got to talk about Lily Gladstone, too, because it's a performance, you know, as Molly that is in such opposition to what DiCaprio is doing and purposefully so. I think that's why they work so well together. I mean, she is, um, Molly is serene. Molly is incredibly smart. Molly is rooted in family and community in a way that Ernest is not. And, you know, Gladstone is doing so much of this. Without doing anything obvious at all. And Mm -hmm. I know we're probably going to talk about her eyes. It's all there in her eyes. The grief, the knowledge, it's all there. But even the way she moves as well. After a couple of scenes, I noticed it's almost like she's floating. And she's often wearing these, um, they're like blanket coats, um, traditional Osage design, we should call out the costume designer here, Jacqueline West that make her look like she's not walking, but floating because they, they just bundle her up as this entire presence that speaks to her serenity. And how about that other incredible scene where they're dating at this point, he's at her house and this violent rainstorm comes and he immediately wants to shut all the windows and he's talking and yammering and she just tells him, sit down. I think, I think she says we need to be quiet for a while and, and mm-hmm. kind of helps him to appreciate the power of the storm. And I think that back and forth between their characters works so well. It's part of the reason I do buy early on, um, their relationship. Mm-hmm. I think that line about his blue eyes are so crucial. She finds them sexy. I yeah. mean, that's sometimes it doesn't take much more of it. there is an exoticism. What was interesting about this is there is an exoticism on Molly's and her sister's parts, towards some of these white men sure um, and you know we often think about it in these situations going the other way but she's attracted to his blue eyes and the charming flirtations they have at the beginning and I do think she recognizes that other side to him that does desire to be
0: settled he told me you was he was going with Matt Williams for a time
1: you talk too much
0: no, I don't talk too much thinking who I got to beat in this horse race, that's all. I
1: didn't realize this was a race. Huh. I don't care for watching horses. Well, I'm a different kind of horse. <laughs> what was that? That's how you are. I don't know what you said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. (laughs) Now, if I have any qualms about the movie, which we don't have to get into now, but but we'll go back to Gladstone. It is in that idea of, you know, what Molly knows and when, um, which I do feel like creates some character problems that... um, this performance is, does not have. The performance itself is absolutely incredible. It's more for me when we get to the point of, it's that intelligence of Molly that's so clear um, when things start really taking a darker turn.
0: Well, I'll I'll jump in on that. I see the performance the same way you do. I, I think it's wonderful. I've got four pages of notes on this film, Josh, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't actually write down anything specific about De Niro, DiCaprio, or Gladstone. That's that's just where my head is on this film, despite the fact that I love all three performances. And I think when we're talking about our favorite performances of the year and inevitably our favorite movies of the year, they're going to come up a lot more. But I was never I was never confused by her her character, I guess, if that's what you're saying, or some of the, the decisions that that she seems to she seems to make. I think there again, it's it's ambiguous. But I think that's intentional and really effective ambiguity. I think about the scene in the tent where the elders assess their situation after a bunch of murders, right? And they decide to send someone to Washington. I'm making a, a connection here between this scene and some of Molly's choices. We watch and listen as they knowingly describe what the white man has wrought with the white men who has wrought it Mm -hmm. sitting in their midst, And when that white man eventually speaks, which he does, what does he do? He offers reward money for information about murders he has all the information about. And my point there is that we may see through King and how early we see through him is potentially up for debate. But we also have knowledge they don't. We have some perspective they don't. We also have the benefit of distance and objectivity. And they, as they then say, following his line, they see him as truly this benevolent presence and truly a friend. And so that, to me, isn't confusing or surprising. And it's definitely not reflecting any kind of, I suppose, naivete on their part. It's depicting something quite real, this, this real inability for all of us, any of us, to see and hear sometimes beyond what we want to see and hear. I think it's a microcosm for the whole movie and the relationships between not just the white men and the indigenous people, but the relationship between Hale and Ernest as well as the relationship between Ernest and Molly. I think you can, you can be wise enough and be lucid enough to see him and call him a coyote, right? And still fall head over heels in love with him and hope that maybe you can contain You can contain the coyote. And then, of course, it comes back to narratives. What story does she tell herself about him? She knows he's a coyote, but she tells herself a narrative. Now, I think I'm with you, Josh, that on some level he really does just want to settle down. And maybe he would have done that without any influence from any other sources. But she still tells herself, well, he wants to settle down. He's going to settle down with me. And that's enough. I think they're, they're all just too close to their betrayers to see the truth. And they're too human. Yeah, willful ignorance
1: is absolutely a major concern of of this movie on a number of different levels. I think mm-hmm. its great thesis is about the willful ignorance of the United States as a nation, sure. Um, and and that's primarily the willful ignorance, you know, not of those who have always been here, um, but those who came later. So I do get that, um, absolutely. I think for me, just to back up a little bit, it, it's almost more of a structural. Issue That isn't huge, but I think you see those cracks when it comes to Molly's character. Um, Let's go back to Goodfellas and just think about how seamlessly constructed that world was where we knew the relationships, the networks of all the people. In that movie, right? And of course, we have Henry Hill's voiceover narration laying it out for us here in in Goodfellas. So it's easy to know Mm -hmm. exactly what's going on. You were never unsure of who was, even as the characters were unsure, you knew kind of what what was happening there. And I just think this screenplay here, Scorsese working with Eric Roth, is not as tightly constructed. Big deal. Good Fellows might be his best movie, right? So that's that's a high standard. But again, for me, when it comes to Molly specifically, um, it goes back to those eyes and the deep sadness in the eyes. You feel there's a knowledge being held there. And I I did it kept pestering me. How much does she know? Not those early scenes. I get, I'm with you about the, you know, hoping that maybe he will settle down. That makes sense. But I think it is, it is with King and there's just maybe there's it's some of the jumps in the time frame that we get here that threw me off a little bit because I think there are instances where we go back and forth un- unless I'm misremembering, um, but that might be part of it too. but I do feel with Molly it's more about you know that when that one character says to King at some point you better you're pronouncing yourself too loudly or something like that. It's not just that he's been pronouncing himself too loudly for two hours. In our eyes. But at that point, he absolutely has. Like, everyone knows Mm -hmm. at that point what he's been up to. And for me, I was wondering about that with Molly when it came to Ernest then in particular. I think, you know, use the word naive. She does seem like she's a little bit naive when it comes to King. But then this relationship with Ernest. Here's my question, and this is a spoiler. So... When Molly insists that that only Ernest can give her these injections, um, insulin injections, right? Um, Do you think that's because she's utterly blind still to his deviousness? And that doesn't seem likely because everyone else in the community at this point knows he's connected in some way to the murders. Even Osage folks are looking at him sideways at this point. So is she just that much more blind, which again, she's way too intelligent of a character for that, or do you think it's possible she wants to make him culpable in her suffering sort of to test how far in this, in this like, you know, self-defeating ultimately way, but to test how far he's willing to go in his betrayal. This was just a little like sticking point for me that doesn't undercut the performance at all, but did in
0: some ways undercut the character. I think... the movie's benefit both interpretations are on the table but i'll be honest with you i saw it as the first option you gave josh and nothing about it bothers me i i truly believe that she loves and trusts her husband and believes that he's the only person that she can trust so it's not it's not a matter of intelligence for me, in any way, shape, or form, it's truly about no matter how intelligent you may be, when you are in love, and also when you're part of an environment in which this type of suffering and this type of, I suppose, calculation around you just seems to be your life. Maybe that, <laughs> maybe that also changes up the dynamic. You can't a bit. see it. You can't. Yeah. You can't see it. That's that's exactly it. She is she is too close to it. Now I think there could be other factors at play too, including her her health, the fact that she's in often a state that isn't quite right. completely yeah. coherent. That can also affect her decision making. But Josh, I think it's worth noting in here again, even though I don't think we need to say it for the third or fourth time. We're getting into very real spoiler territory. At the end of the film, Josh, there's a moment where I believe there could actually be an element of redemption for this character, not in a way that negates anything he does or changes our view of him. I mean more in the spiritual sense, a chance for redemption and even potentially a chance for some kind of reconciliation Mm -hmm. with his wife. I I agree. Despite... Everything she now knows to be true, she provides him with that out, and he can't take it. So even in that moment, she's she's still opening that door for him, and I think that speaks to the, the nature of that relationship.
1: Yeah, and I think what else is going on there, and, and maybe this is why... It, it does make her a complicated character. There's such ambition here in what this film is asking her to represent. So that moment plays personally, as you described for sure. Mm-hmm. But Molly also here is, is symbolic, right? For the, the native experience in the U.S. Um, across history, not just in this moment. And so when she asks that crucial question, have you told all the truths? She's asking it of him and of their marriage but this is where the movie is asking it of american society right and so i i admire the ambition of asking her to do that even though if i get caught up in you know how it may not work for me at least seamlessly with the interpersonal dynamics i like that that is where um the movie is heading and that
0: that's the project it the ultimate project it wants to be i think this is a good time to break and come back to a little bit more, really get into the ending of this film and the approach that Martin Scorsese takes, I do want to briefly mention that this film was populated with some incredible faces and incredible voices. We've mentioned a few of them, but way beyond, of course, DiCaprio or Lily Gladstone or Robert De Niro, you have actors like Louis Cancelme showing up as Kelsey Morrison, who's a side character in this film, but is so... Scary, oh, authentically terrifying. scary in this movie. You mentioned Jason Isbell and maybe he's doing something here. We know that Scorsese likes his rock stars. Longtime friend of Robbie Robertson, as we noted, he's not only got Jason Isbell, who's quite good as Bill Smith. Jack White appears. Sturgill Simpson appears. Pete Yorn appears in the film. The actor, I can't believe I forgot his name after one of the most iconic scenes of the past 20 years or so, No Country for Old Men, the scene in the convenience store, the gas station with Javier Bardem. Gene Jones is that that man, that very memorable face, even if I couldn't quite remember the name, but it's everyone. I feel like we could list about 15 of these, these incredible faces that make appearances in this film. It's another element that just adds so much richness and and texture to this movie is this a bad time then to say that there is only one performance (laughs) that stands out terribly amidst all of them negatively you're saying oh there there's one where i don't know what this actor who got high praise from both of us not too many months ago on this show i'm not sure what he's doing in this movie josh and i am i am talking about the appearance late in the film of brendan fraser Oh yeah. It's it's so jarring that
1: it's meant to be clearly, you know, as this attorney who's he's just a lawyer, he's an orator. He, sure. Yeah, but it it's it's out of tune
0: with what else is going on. Let's say that. That's it's fair. Of a of a size that is so out of sync with the rest of the film that I'm not lying, I sort of had the feeling watching it like any second, I'm going to see, I'm going to glimpse in the corner of the frame, DiCaprio or some other actor looking at one of their co-stars like, are we rolling right now? What What's happening? That's it's how not, it felt to me. It's that bad. It's not that bad. bad. It's it not that bad. I,
1: yeah. I, I think I was more forgiving because he's playing a showman. This is the whole point of this lawyer character great so i i get what you're
0: saying i don't uh-huh. think it's
1: disastrous and he has oh. like two
0: scenes right
1: fortunately
0: okay <laughs> mercifully he only has two scenes i hate that i've got to end here on a negative note but we are going to have more killers of the flower moon talk coming up if you have a comment about this conversation or anything you'd like to share about the show we'd love to hear from you feedback at filmspotting.net
1: yeah also Other than Flower Moon Talk, I think we're going to do some some preliminary Scorsese rankings. Uh, This is not a project either of us has have set down and put in stone, but might be might be an occasion to think about where things stand right now.
0: We're going to see how compelling 10 minutes of equivocating is. (laughs) I can't wait. Before we get to that, though, here are a couple of ways
1: you can help this show, whether you're a longtime listener or you just discovered us. Can you take a second? Give us a rating or a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That's the best way we can reach new listeners.
0: Another way to support us, join the Film Spotting family. Members get to listen early and ad free. You get the weekly newsletter. You get monthly bonus shows, including that horror movie draft, five rounds where we're going to pick the greatest horror movies of all time. Who wants to miss that? You also can get complete access to the entire Film Spotting archive
1: That's O-L-L-Y dot com.
0: The autopsy report is inconclusive. I think he fell. An accidental fall is going to be hard to defend. Nobody's going to believe that. That's from the trailer for Justine Trier's Anatomy of a Fall. Currently playing in limited release, Trier's film won the top award at this year's Cannes Film Festival and stars German actress Sandra Huller as a woman on trial for the death of her husband. We will have a review of that next week. I'm excited, Josh, because this movie is going to offer the occasion of the rare Adam date night Ooh. at the movies. I know okay. I know, you and Debbie partake in a lot of movies together. Sarah tends to hate all the movies I ever want to watch for this show, but a good murder story, a mystery, huh? also, you know, about a, a wife possibly killing her husband. Somehow she's in. <laughs> well, and the lighthouse
1: has been, what,
0: five years now? Oh, that's so true. That's plenty of time yeah.
1: for Sarah to recover. I think she's ready to venture back to the movies.
0: Can't wait. Also next week, we'll have a new Golden Brick nomination from you, Josh, and I hope to get, and maybe you'll get to it as well. It's coming to Apple TV Plus this weekend, a movie I talked about during our fall movie preview, Fingernails, a new film that stars, oh, just a couple of the best actors currently working, Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. They play a couple who begin to question the reality of their relationship. It's from Greek director Christos Niku, who made 2020's apples did you see apples i never got to it so uh, yeah i know we were both very intrigued so yeah this one this one i hope to get to as well if you've got thoughts on anatomy of a fall or fingernails if you caught up with it or you have any 2023 golden brick recommendations time is running short on that don't we know it please let us know feedback at filmspotting.net it's the best day ever josh why we've got some codes to give away for barbie on digital. Margot Robbie, of course, brings Barbie to life, of course, with Ryan Gosling and an all-star cast. To live in Barbie land is to be a perfect being in a perfect place unless you have a full-on existential crisis or you're a Ken. We know we're not Kens, so we're not subject to that. But we would both like to own Barbie on digital now. And for your chance to win it, all you have to do is email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. In the subject line, put Barbie contest and in the body, it's really simple, Josh. Share your 1,500-word analysis of Barbie the film as both cinematic achievement and cultural artifact. We prefer MLA format. Mm, yes. Or alternatively, you could just rank Gerwig's filmography. <laughs> <laughs> Bonus <laughs> points to anyone who includes that thing she co-directed with Joe Swanberg.
1: What What I love is there's a there's a good
0: chance we might get more of those essays than rankings we might knowing our audience. (laughs) Barbie is available now on digital. Again, Barbie contest in the subject, email feedback at filmspotting.net and rank Greta Gerwig's filmography. I think we're gonna do this even though sometimes when we come out with details too quickly. It backfires on us. Like there was one point in time, Josh, where we previously had announced that we were doing a live show in Los Angeles. So I'm a little scared now because then COVID happened. Yeah.
1: So you're, you're afraid we're going to ignite another pandemic
0: is what you're saying. Knock on any piece of wood around you now, please. But I suppose it being October 24th, we did want to at least kind of throw out a digital save the date card here, a verbal save the date card. We're hoping to do our next rap party on Saturday, January 13th. We hope to be doing it in sunny L.A. No offense, New York. No offense, Brooklyn. Had a great time at the Bell House. Loved hanging with all of you. Little chilly. It was chilly. It wasn't
1: terrible, but it was a
0: little chilly. It was a little chilly. (laughs) chilly. We're we're looking to enjoy some sunshine. This is going to be like Barbie and Ken heading off to, to L.A. Josh, I think it'll be just like that. Do you have the rollerblades for me already? (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) Saturday, January 13th. We have no more details to share, but, you know, maybe mark it in your calendar again here just with pencil.
1: A little sooner than that, and this is your last chance to get in on this. Some of you might be hearing it after it happens, but in case you're one of our early listeners, this Saturday, October twenty 8 p.m., I am going to be doing a book event about Fear Not a Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. This is going to be at Facets here in Chicago over there on Fullerton Avenue. I'm going to introduce Talk to Me, the Australian horror possession flick from earlier this year. Then we'll watch it and afterwards get together in the newly redesigned Facets Lounge. Can't wait to check that out. There'll be drinks, there'll be snacks, and we'll talk about The movie we'll talk about the book how the movie might fit into the book we'll talk about whatever you want to if you're looking for tickets to that go to facets.org we'll also link to it in the show notes this week on our sister podcast the next picture show it's part two of their outback outsiders pairing so they're looking at kitty green's the royal hotel with julia garner and jessica henwick alongside 1971's wake in fright from director todd kocheff now, if you've never heard of Wake and Fright, like I did until they announced this pairing and you want to catch up with it, you can do that. It's streaming on AMC Plus and Shudder, or see if you can get it at your local library. Your Next Picture Show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. We do want to give you a heads up about their next pairing, since we're talking about Killers of the Flower Moon on this show. That's what they'll be getting to alongside, how about this, 1950s Broken Arrow. Now, this isn't the Travolta-Christian Slater flick from 96. (laughs) One of Adam's top 15 films of all time. Broken Arrow from 1950 is set in 1870, stars Jimmy Stewart, as the scout sent to stem the war. Between Whites and Apaches. That one is currently streaming on Peacock and VOD. And I got a note here, Adam, you and Sam did not include Broken Arrow among the shortlist for best of the 50s film spotting madness looks like, huh?
0: Well, I don't know why either of you had to bring that up. I will now have to confess, I'm not familiar at all with the title Broken Arrow. So no, did not make the shortlist for all film right. spotting Me madness. Either.
1: Don't feel too bad. 2024. Again, that's the next picture show. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Arise, arise, riders of Theoden! Spears shall be shaken, shields shall be splintered. A sword day, a red day, and the sun rises. You can name that tune in how many notes, Josh? Oh, I mean,
1: I, I believe two or three. three. That's the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, that's in my notes too. I I wish I was enough <laughs> of a Lord pretended. of the Rings geek to have identified. I could have told you it was a battle. I don't know if I could have pulled Pelennor Fields. Hmm. I'm
0: probably even pronouncing it incorrectly. <laughs> I hope we get tons of emails. I hope you get deluge with correct pronunciations. It's time for some deeply flawed film spotting poll results in addition to our flawed pronunciations. A couple of weeks back, in anticipation of the three-hour and 26-minute Killers of the Flower Moon, didn't feel any part of that length, Josh. We asked you, what is your favorite three-plus-hour film from the last 20 years? So that's going back to 2003. We had many options for you. I will list them quickly. We had Avengers Endgame. We had Reiske Hamaguchi's Drive My Car, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman, Return of the King, Oppenheimer, S.S. Rajamuli's RRR, and you could go other if you chose to write in a title overlooked by producer Sam and the two of us. How did it come out, Josh? So
1: Endgame, last place here, 8%, and then three films, each got 9%, The Irishman, Oppenheimer, and RRR. How about other coming in here next with ten percent of the vote? Some folks went with Nuri Bilge Ceylan's Winter Sleep. David Lynch's Inland Empire also got some love. Babylon. There are Babylon fans. Mariah Gates out there just
0: stuffing the ballot box, <laughs> try, just clicking all day long, trying to work the
1: system. Yeah, and um, let's see. Let's jump up to fourteen percent, which is the second place winner here. Drive my car, but Lord of the Rings. Return of the King deservedly, I would say,
0: won this with 30% of the vote. Sorry, I was too busy laughing at Sam's little aside here in our notes, where he's listing the write-in candidates and then adds, Didn't read the question, The Godfather Part Two, Once Upon a Time in America, and Ben-Hur. Mm, yeah. You just you just got Van Hallgrind. <laughs> you, you were, <laughs> Sam got really annoyed Berg. by some of this. <laughs> Josh Newby says... When discussing films of such length, there are two approaches. The first is that it didn't feel like three hours, in which case the winner is Wolf of Wall Street. The second is that it did feel like three hours, but you gloried in the luxury and breathability of the runtime. Like like a good pair of jeans. I like my movie to have breathability. In which case the winner is Return of the King, Josh says. Boy, you felt that runtime, especially toward the end, but you also didn't mind it.
1: Okay, like that logic, Josh. Here's Julio Oliveira. So glad Sam saw the light and eventually decided to include the best superhero movie ever on this poll. Another (laughs) Sam note here. (laughs) He says,
0: I'm assuming Julio is referring to RRR. Yeah, he has to be. Jeff Clark, with films of great length comes great responsibility. The films on the list all performed admirably in maintaining the viewer's attention span, but The Irishman holds a special place in my heart. The synergy of each of the three main relationships in the De Niro, Pacino, Pesci triangle was a wonder to behold. There was never a moment when I wasn't curious to see what happened next, even on my third viewing. Irishman was going to get my vote after Lord of the Rings. Daniel Kibler added,
1: In terms of the number of times I've watched it, it's the Irishman in a walk. I'd have loved to see Olivier Asayas's Carlos in the poll as well. It runs a close second for this category and is equally epic and
0: replayable. Big fan of Carlos. Tom him." says, my childhood self would never forgive me for snubbing Return of the King. And while it's a film that I still love, including the over four hours long extended edition, yikes, Josh, I don't even know if you're up for that. have not done it, I confess. RRR was the most electrifying theater experience I've had in my life. I've seen it three more times since, each time dragging friends or family members to see it with me, only to witness them applauding and screaming in delight at Rajamuli's epic spectacle, just like I did. My vote goes to RRR.
1: Here's Zeph Wagner. I've seen RRR four times in a movie theater, and they were all fantastic experiences. Sold out crowds, hooting and hollering and cheering and clapping throughout. The music is incredible, the dancing is incredible, the action is incredible, and all the performances are incredible. It's a nearly perfect movie, and the three plus hours just flies by. If you watch it on Netflix, you're really missing out. See it in a theater if you can, or ask your local theater to start showing it. The Hollywood Theater in Portland has shown it once or twice a month for over a year and is still selling out a 400-seat auditorium,
0: Hmm. so it must be available from whoever the distributor is. Quick, proud father aside that all this talk of seeing RRR multiple times in the theater reminds me of, my daughter Sophie was home from college for fall break this past week, and... That meant she got to participate in some events at the Refocus Film Festival, and she works at Film Scene. So that's very convenient. And when she's not working, she gets to see movies. So I, of course, had told her many times how she's going to have to make time when she's back to go see Stop Making Sense. She saw Stop Making Sense, loved it so much that she found time to see it a second time. And then it turns out on Sunday, my wife mentions to me that Sophie got back to campus really late. And I'm like, well, she didn't leave the house that late what what happened it was pretty late in the day in terms of the afternoon on sunday but it wasn't at night i said well what what took her so long and apparently she was on her way out of town and she just decided to head back up to film scene and watch stop making sense for a third time that's my girl i hope sophie's supervisors aren't
1: listening to this apparently she's spending all her shifts just going in and watching stop making sense
0: yeah yeah Here is Sean Means. Boy, a tough choice. After flirting with the spectacle of RRR, I finally landed on the emotional beauty of Drive My Car. It's a movie that takes its time and earns every minute of it with its thoughtful, shattering depiction of theater people finding their way through their past baggage by collaborating on a multi-language production of Uncle Vanya. Good film. All right, we're
1: entering... Hour three of our feedback on three plus mm-hmm. hour yes, movies. We are. But Danny, it's all
0: good. Danny Cox. It's all essential.
1: Josh. <laughs> oh, when are we going to get the extended cut? This Kenneth Lonergan erasure will not stand, man. The long delayed masterpiece, Margaret, is perhaps underseen, but deserves to be amongst this selection of epics. Another note from Sam the theatrical cut of Margaret is under three hours, but the much praised extended cut is three hours, six minutes. We
0: should read all of Sam's asides in the voice of Hal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that would be wonderful. From now on. (laughs) I'm afraid I can't do that. Here's Taylor Cole, going other because I recently had the time of my life seeing a 70-millimeter blow-up print of Babylon at Chicago's Music Box Theater over the summer. It's a movie I liked okay when I first saw it last December, but it only continues to grow for me, and the time spent watching it seems to pass more quickly with every additional viewing. Oh, no. Mariah has gotten (laughs) Uh to Taylor. Here's Mark in Philly. I looked through a
1: list of possible other movies, and once I saw Inland Empire was a viable choice, 180 minutes, according to Letterboxd, it became an obvious answer for me. I fully look forward to answering the same when this
0: poll, which is cursed, is remade decades from now. Okay, here's a really inspired pick. This is from RMP. The people demand that Adam embrace the full four hours of his pick of the litter from the new Argentine cinema marathon, Mariano Chinas' Extraordinary Stories rather than the designated alternatives. Wikipedia gives its budget as, and here, I don't know if this was a typo on RMP's part or not, but it says 30,00.00. So if you take out the comma, it's $3,000, but it sort of looks like $30,000, and hell, maybe it's supposed to be $3 million. But the point here still stands. It probably wouldn't cover the Return of the King's expenses for non-dairy creamer. I bet that's true, even at $3 million. And it's nearly an hour longer to boot. Dug this film. I think we both dug this film. Yes,
1: I do remember. That was a long time ago we did that marathon, and definitely that was one of the highlights. A couple more comments here. S.J. Lucero, I picked Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And if you're doing it right, you're watching the four-hour, ten-minute extended cut of Lord of the Rings,
0: Return of the King. Yeah, not going to happen. Charles Kinsenery closes us out. Nobody is going to mention. I love the incredulity. I can. I can hear it. Charles's voice nobody's going to mention 2008's love exposure it's my number one answer all 237 minutes of it this is from the Japanese director Sion Sono who also made Suicide Club and apparently we are going to have to ask Charles to program all of our upcoming marathons sounds like it yeah careful there Charles don't don't push Sam any further he's at his limit Thanks to everyone who voted and shared a comment. Our new poll has us looking ahead to Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, which comes to theaters on November 3rd. It is Coppola's seventh feature, and she is arguably batting a thousand for her career. Here are the titles, Josh. You tell me if Sophia Coppola is indeed batting a thousand. The Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, Somewhere, The Bling Ring, The Beguiled, and On the Rocks. I mean, she is, for me, if we're defining it
1: as those are all good films, I think right. there's a variation in there, Sure, but I don't think she's had a stinker that I've seen and I've seen yeah, them
0: all. Well, she's definitely not had a stinker. If I'm going strictly by my star ratings, I do think, I do think I may have given the bling ring only two and a half out Yay. of five stars. Yeah. Which, yeah, which I we was... did some
1: list about like the most important films of some century or something and I had it on there. So
0: I'm Probably. I'm just shocked and appalled. I know you are, but I didn't hate it. So she's close to batting a thousand. You can do the math. She's batting eight something there. Despite the strength of that filmography, there is one film. I agree with Sam on this. There's one film that does feel like the default definitive Sofia Coppola film, and that would be 2003's Lost in Translation. Josh, do you care to take any issue with this poll and risk Sam? making some sarcastic quip at you. <laughs> absolutely absolutely not. In this case, mostly because he's
1: right. I think that does stand above the others, despite what I said about The Bling Ring. I think there were you know, societal contexts that I was giving for why I put it on that list. But I think in terms of what's her best film, it's Lost in Translation.
0: Well, our question is simple. What's your favorite Sofia Coppola film? Is it Lost in Translation or is it Other? And based on what you just said, Josh, it sounds like... <sighs> You have a clear choice here? Lost in translation? Well, now we're getting into the favorite best debate. Sure. And I might say my favorite is
1: Marie Antoinette, huh. actually. I mean, just for like, if you're defining favorite as pleasurable viewing experience, not that lost in translation isn't that? I don't know. Okay. She's made a ton of good movies. What do you want okay. me to do?
0: I-, I want you to answer the question. What's your favorite <laughs> Sofia Coppola film? Favorite and just give Marie me a title. Marie
1: Antoinette, best lost in translation. Yeah. Um, Number 15 film of this century, Bling Ring. How's that?
0: Okay. Wow. Very definitive there. (laughs) Here's what I'll say it's between two films, and Lost in Translation is one of them, but I'm considering whether it's Lost in Translation or I might go back. I might go back to her debut. Mm -hmm. The film that still kind of lingers the most in my mind is actually The Virgin Suicides. Case two, where I actually did read that book, though I'm pretty sure I read it after. I saw the film, not before, but really enjoyed the book, really enjoyed the film, and I also like Lost in Translation. I know you're out there, Adam Grossman. I saw your comments on, on Twitter. I know that you're still mad at me for not immediately anointing. Lost in Translation and putting it in the Pantheon, but I might think The Virgin Suicides is the better film. I wasn't going to bring that up, Adam. You could have just coasted by without being branded as
1: a Lost in Translation hater. And and while we're on the topic, I don't know that we were voting it to be in the Pantheon. I think in those days, we were just determining whether something was a sacred cow or not.
0: No, I I can tell you that I remember- It was Pantheon? I remember it coming up. It might not have come up within the actual context of the review Mm. and maybe more like the next show or something. But at some point, it did come up whether or not we were going to put it in the Pantheon. And I was like, eh, I'm not sold on it. I mean,
1: you're just digging yourself a hole here you keep (laughs) digging. I'm trying to give you so many
0: outs. You can vote. You can leave a comment at filmspotting.net. It's supposed to be a suicide, you dumbbell. You didn't tell him to leave the gun. I don't know why I told him to leave the gun. I told him to leave the gun. Just like you told him, I don't know why he didn't. I don't know why. I told him just like you told him. Before we get into some babbling about where Killers of the Flower Moon ranks on our Scorsese all-time filmography list, we did want to devote a little bit more time to the film. This is uncommon for us, but in this case, we have a movie we think is definitely worth it. And we have a filmmaker we know is worth it. I think we have two issues we can get to in terms of the ending and also this question from Scott Ham that speaks to some of what we got into initially, Josh, with regard to the, the trickiness of DiCaprio's character, Ernest. Scott writes this, I've gotten into a debate with someone about this, and I think it's obvious, but they disagree. The debate is to whether Ernest fully understands that he is poisoning Molly with the insulin. I believe he doesn't, which is really the crux of his whole character. First, King spells out almost every plot to him that he's hatching against others, but he never tells Ernest about this. King says he has gotten Molly insulin for her diabetes, and only four or five people are using it. When asked about the supplement, they say it will slow her down a little, but never explain why that's needed. Like everything else, Ernest just accepts it. So I do want to stop there quickly. We do definitely understand why that's needed in their mind, and even for Ernest, right? Because at that point, she is just gone to washington <laughs> she's gone to washington right. and asked the president to intervene and whether or not they think the president or anyone else is going to intervene they do literally say we need to slow her down a little bit because she's going off and doing things like that right yeah. so i do think yeah that, i agree that part's clear this omission of king explaining the plot seems deliberate i think he believes as we and Ernest do that Ernest really loves molly Armed with the knowledge of the poison, Ernest may not do it, but he's so easily manipulated that it's simple enough to just not tell him. I think this shows in Leo's performance when Molly asks him about it. He's almost confused by the question because that's the one thing he didn't realize he was doing. She takes his denial as a lie as he's coming to the realization that he was responsible for her deteriorating health. What do you make of Scott's summary of how that plays out and the, the question at hand, Josh?
1: Yeah, I think Scott's overall characterization of Ernest's character and the wrestling that's going on within him is accurate but I always understood that he was aware. I, I think even the description of how King is how Hale is you know talking about this to Ernest falls in line with what we were saying before this this is just kind of the natural way of things and and it was it, it's another way of removing complicity out of their hands by mm-hmm. saying to Ernest, well, she just needs to be slowed down. That could mean for her own health. She needs to be quieted. Yeah. She's overexerting herself. He's giving Ernest reasons why this needs to happen beyond why they really need to happen. And I will say there's that moment where Ernest pours some of the added material, the poison essentially into his whiskey It's and yeah, so so that's definitive to me. That that is a moment of self punishment, and it registers clearly to me as that in that scene. And he would not be doing that if he didn't understand that it was harmful.
0: Okay, so that's where maybe we can we can split hairs a little bit, and that's that's the kind of discussion that this movie provokes. Like maybe right, he's numbing himself. I guess is the other is the other reading there yeah, and it's entirely possible as someone who did see battle, even if he was just the cook. And I do love that's a nice little slippery bit from from Hale when he when he sees him. The mm-hmm. first thing he says to him is the war hero, like he yeah, he makes it seem more grandiose than, of course, he really was because he was quote unquote just just a cook. but he's he's been there, and he might be quite aware of what morphine can do. I guess what I believe Josh is. He, Whether it's a matter of not being smart enough or a combination of not being smart enough and also not wanting to know the truth, the denial, the willful ignorance. I think somewhere in his heart, somewhere in his mind, he would say he's not aware that he's doing anything to her other than slowing her down and seeing the valid reasons for them in his mind why she needs to be slowed down because she could wreck all this. But I don't think he knows I don't think he knows that he's killing her. I think maybe that's the difference. I think he's willfully ignorant about the fact that he's poisoning her. I do think he knows for a fact, though. He knows for a fact that he is adding something. I mean, obviously, he knows that. I think he also knows what he's adding. There's that scene that you mentioned where he chooses to to have some of it himself. He puts the morphine in his drink, right? His whiskey. Mm -hmm. And as I recall the scene, I thought you can see quite clearly on the on the vial, you can see what it is. He's looking at it. So I think he, he knows that he's adding something and he knows that it's morphine. The question is, can he convince himself or has he sufficiently convinced himself that he doesn't totally know that he's killing his wife because he really does love her as much as he, he claims to love her? And then to the other question here from Scott, I do see that ending a little bit differently than he does. Scott's suggesting, well, if he doesn't know that he's poisoning her, then, when she asks him about it, his denial is really his confusion over the fact that, well, no, I would, I would never poison you. But that's not, that's not her question. Her question is, no, as but, I recall it, her question is, did you add anything? Yeah. What, what did you add, or did you add something? And he denies that he ever added anything. He may still, he may still believe, or he thought then that he wasn't trying to kill her by adding that stuff. But in this moment when she confronts him with that, he he can't admit the truth there in that moment. But he knows he was adding something. Right.
1: Well, this goes back to her function as I see it as a symbolic character as well. Um, you know, it's less potent if there is not complicity and awareness of complicity on Ernest's part. She is less Mm -hmm. potent to me as a symbolic figure, which I I think pretty clearly she is meant to be historically symbolic and significant. Um, If Ernest has this, I wouldn't call it an out, but still, if it's a different degree of complicity, he needs to be wholly complicit for those moments. This one you're talking about here Mm -hmm. and the question about telling all the truths uh, for those to hit as hard as they do.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about The ending of the film, because you mentioned that beyond the sequence we spent some time on, where we get that kind of breaking with reality, the movie doesn't have any of those kind of touches to it, maybe ostentatious moments. And at the end of the film, Scorsese gives us an epilogue where we see that Killers of the Flower Moon, the story, or at least the broad strokes of the story, we've seen play out it's it's now being it's being dramatized as a radio play for what probably a 1950s audience maybe a 1940s audience i don't know the exact timing and not only that it's it's an audience of all white people with all white performers i'm wondering what you made of it josh i mean
1: incredibly bold and i think it's not You know, out of line with other bold endings that Scorsese has chosen for his movies, including ones that, if not break the fourth wall, bring us to a completely different space, which, as you described, this does. I think it makes the commentary about what stories are told and how they're told and who tells them more explicit. So I guess someone could make the argument that this isn't necessary to make the movie's point, but um, I found that it was... A really bravura exclamation point. You have the added fact that the final lines are delivered by by Scorsese himself playing one of the radio dramatists and talking about Molly, the figure of Molly in particular, and something to the effect of how in her obituary the connection to these murders wasn't mentioned. So, Mm -hmm. so more erasure going on there about actual history. So again, very pointed. I found it to be powerful, even having Scorsese do it, you know, you know, you might say, well, that's a little bit overboard. We don't need the, you know, the, the most authorial figure behind this film, literally appearing to us. But again, he has a history of appearing in his movies. So it's of a piece with yeah, his filmography. I think it would bother me more if this was the first time Scorsese ever appeared on screen in one of his movies. That even bothered mm. me, but it would stand out to me as like um, a bit too much. But, but because this is a motif he's engaged in, I think it works. And then we should note also, there's another move to a different, reality a different space it is reality it's actually contemporary reality I think the final shot right is this overhead mm-hmm. um, image of a contemporary modern day drum circle and the camera rises up and away while that performance is going on which which I really loved I, I really loved yeah the emphasis that this didn't only take place in the 1920s it only probably wasn't regurgitated as true crime entertainment mm-hmm. in the 1940s or whatever. But no, there are relatives of these people still today trying to preserve some of these traditions that were attempted to be squelched out back then. So I really liked that ultimate last mm-hmm. shot.
0: Yeah, me too. And maybe in a different but similar way to something like the ending we get with Spike Lee's Malcolm X, mm. where we come into the present. Yeah, day yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah. well. So it's interesting you bringing up this idea. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, even though, of course, when I saw Scorsese on screen, I did think about him appearing in his other movies, even sometimes just appearing as a voice like he does in a movie you just finally caught up with and thank goodness you quite liked The Color of Money He's the narrator. The the, opening narrator. Beginning there, right? But if he had never done it before, that would also, I think, speak to this film in terms of the tricky nature of who is authoring this story and the kind of wrestling with that the Scorsese is a filmmaker is potentially doing. If if this is something he felt for the first time to do, that would also be really fascinating to discuss in those terms. And I might be even more, for lack of a better word, moved by that decision, I suppose. But I'm with you. I, I like that it is of a piece with the rest of his work. I got really worried when it first became apparent what was happening, Josh. Mm. I I, I did think for a second, I wonder if you had a similar thought or if I just, my brain goes into this meta territory right away. I wondered if we'd actually see like De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio mm. emerge on stage portraying the characters we just watched them portray, something kind of like Wes Anderson's Asteroid City with all those layers yeah. of of different portrayals. And my thought about that potentially happening was, well, this would be mind-blowing but almost certainly infuriating. It would it would be at best a cheap stunt, it would be at worst horribly insensitive. And fortunately that's that's not that's not what happened. And as I process what we do see, the power of it really struck me. And I think you expressed it well. I want to get at and I'm going to admit here, I've seen this word thrown around on social media a little bit. I don't know if anybody's written long form about it or the people who have used it I can't even say from a tweet, Josh, whether or not they're using it the way I think they're using it. But let me say that it's potentially being misused. I see this come up every now and again as a moment where Scorsese is indicting the audience. So when I hear that, I read that as potentially a moment where, for some, Scorsese is saying, hey, audience member, consuming this story, you're really no different than these naive folks white folks lapping all of this up. You're, you're all guilty of reducing the struggle and the Osage's anguish to story time to entertainment. And, and part of the problem with that would be, I think we do have to understand that the movie itself, Scorsese as the filmmaker is making a distinction between what we've just witnessed and the sensational kind of crime story. The radio play seems to be, it's taking a different approach, right? There, there isn't an equivalent there. The other part would be, well, then how guilty are you as the director serving that up to us? And artists reproaching themselves for their sins can be interesting. We know Scorsese is interested in sin, and we know he makes personal films. I, I, I just, if that is what some are arguing, I don't think that's what's occurring here. I think Scorsese is too sensitive. He's too incisive. He's someone who cares too much about storytelling to reduce this story to a battle of his demons. I also think he's too smart to reduce it to finger wagging at his audience. Whether whether as white Americans we should feel a collective shame over the treatment of the Osage and other indigenous people is so obvious that to concoct an ending like this to underscore it also seems to me reductive. So so for me I saw Scorsese acknowledging a sincere attempt on his part to reckon with the limitations of trying to tell the story of a tragedy of this severity and scale that no matter how carefully and thoughtfully it's framed, the very act of framing it necessarily does reduce it. And I think he, I think he's reckoning with that in a genuine way. And, and maybe even you could say with his remarks to us on the mic there at the end that he's, he's apologizing for it. But I do think that's something different than saying you're guilty. I'm guilty. Aren't we all so evil? Uh, this just isn't a movie that paints in those broad, broad strokes. And as you noted, I, I do think it's very telling that it's it's he himself on screen at the end pointing out that when she died and the obituary was published, they don't even mention the murders. So Flower Moon does fill in the blanks of that history. And the the history writers who are always white, they'd all decided that their audiences didn't need to hear Those details, but I don't think he's patting himself on the back either. This isn't a pure act of exoneration. I I do think he knows that stories can only go so far. And again, this is a recurring idea throughout the film, not only in the way I brought it up in terms of the types of narratives you tell yourself, but also think about the different newsreel. Footage that we get, including the yeah, that's the an Tulsa, interesting
1: formal touch at the yeah, beginning. the
0: Tulsa race massacre too. Halfway through the film, mm-hmm. we see footage on screen. We see De Niro's character watching that, and we see him reference it later. Clearly, what he took away from that footage of the Tulsa race massacre is not at all what you or me or most audience members are thinking when we watch that. But he he sees what he wants to see and uses it appropriately. So I do think it all it all comes together in a really fascinating way there at the end. Yeah, it didn't strike me as any sort of audience
1: indictment. I, I wasn't aware that that complaint was out there. It's interesting though, and, and as we get into Scorsese ranked, you know, we might touch on this. I do remember feeling a bit like that with A Wolf of Wall Street. Which I remember. That's one of the That's reasons why we I split. thought it might occur to you here. Yeah, yeah. No, it didn't strike me here, but it's it's not out of the realm of possibility from my vantage point for a Scorsese movie. Here, if there's any indictment, it's it's you know just that. As I said, this history has been repurposed as a true crime piece of entertainment, I think the indictment is of that practice, how that has continued, not of the people who are sitting in the theater watching Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, you raise the interesting point of, is this Scorsese wanting to be on screen, acknowledging that he is wrestling with himself as the storyteller here because i have seen pushback on the movie about that about this vantage point still being mostly told we've talked about how crucial molly is and how great lily gladstone is but this is mostly a story told from the vantage point of the white men right the the bad guys and i think that's a debate well worth having i think the question of would this movie from molly's perspective told from a filmmaker an indigenous filmmaker be a better story. I don't know. No one can really answer that. I would like to think it would be different. I would like to think we could get that story too. I'd be fascinated by it, especially, you know, reservation dogs, the, the Hulu series, which is almost a hundred percent indigenous cast and crew that was absolutely brilliant for the uniqueness of its perspective. And 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 just vantage point that was completely eye-opening for me. And so I get that critique. You know, this, as we've described, this is in some ways another Scorsese gangster drama. It is unique in those terms, but it essentially is. So I say all of this to say, first, that I recognize that's a worthy critique and a discussion worth having, but also I do wonder, as you were talking, if Scorsese's choice here was not a self-indictment, but a Mm self-acknowledgement that, you know, I recognize I'm the author here and I'm not the most perfect author. And at least making space for that within
0: the experience of this movie. I, I don't think you can separate that from the larger conversation around this film or those moments. Real quick, I will say, the one or two times I've seen the word indictment or indict come up in tweets, I didn't read it as a complaint, actually. I'm just saying I disagree with it. I, I don't think that's exactly what's happening, or I think it minimizes what Scorsese is doing. The other thing I'll say, even though I'm not at all ready to really hash this out, first of all, I'll agree with everything you said about having that conversation and what a different movie it would be told by an indigenous filmmaker, an Osage filmmaker. But one of my counters to the argument that it's largely a white man's story because it's DiCaprio's character story is, I actually think at some point I became hyper aware of the fact that once things get set in motion, we were talking all about this kind of corrupt, complicated web that starts to unfold and everything just sort of being an expectation. I felt like we even stopped seeing the movie from his perspective. And it wasn't about Ernest at all. Ernest, like the character he becomes to Hale and the others in the film. I feel like he kind of becomes appropriately the patsy. Think about how little we see. There are some pointed moments. Don't get me wrong. I can think of specific scenes. And again, I'm not completely ready to make this full on case yet. I'm just saying I became aware, Josh, of the fact that a lot of things happen to him and almost nothing happens because of him in this film. The way you would expect a character who's driving a narrative forward. He seems to be someone who is caught. In something. And the movie doesn't even show his perspective. He just becomes one of the characters in the film.
1: Sure. But it's still largely his story. I don't know if I can go quite as far as that with you. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, just the structure, really, because Molly gets a few voiceover lines, as I Mm -hmm. mentioned, and it's almost as if I think that is good and adds to the film in terms of representation and perspective. But it also confuses things Back to this idea of how much does she know? Because very early on, there's a montage of killings, and we hear Molly saying, no investigation. Right. No investigation. So that places her as a crusader. Mm -hmm. But then we jump back, and she's more naive about it. So it's just it's just where this is kind of one of those, it's not as seamless as Goodfellas. We don't know the network of people here in this film as clearly as we did there. We don't know the relationships as well. There's the one moment where, you know, Molly is living in her home alone, well, with her mother, with her mother, this beautiful home she has Ernest over. And then I think two scenes later we see, and there's a jump cut in time, but like all these people are living there with her. And it's those sort of contextual things that left me a bit adrift. And then you add on, I'll, I'll try this back into our, our notion of perspective and whose story this is Molly dropping in as this all knowing voiceover Henry Hill type, essentially giving us the lowdown. But then later in the film, she has to be the one who's you know, somewhat to me, naively aware of what's going on. So hmm. I do think that's a sticking point in the film that is related to this idea of of the storyteller's perspective we're touching on.
0: I felt like that scene that you're describing was just, that was clearly like a Sunday dinner scene where the whole family is together. It didn't strike me as anything out of the ordinary. But, one of, but the brother is like
1: sleeping there. It's like, it's like Ernest's family has sort of moved in. And we're but not had even a bunch sure. of company
0: over it was Sun- It Yeah, it just felt it just felt to me like Sunday dinner. And I think, again, I would just say we could digress on this and it would get us nowhere. But your Goodfellas corollary here just doesn't work for me in the sense that one of the things about Goodfellas is that is a world where the rules and all of the demarcation lines are completely clear. You are either. In the family, or you are outside of the family, and you expect it to be that way, and nothing about the insidiousness of what uh, we see happen uh, in *Killers of what the Flower Moon*. But what Is about Jimmy, though?
1: See, like,
0: like Jimmy De
1: Niro in *Goodfellas* represents exactly the sort of we think we know, but we're not sure we know mm. how far he would go. Whereas here, it's
0: it's like, oh, we know how far. Wow, I hail s- I is going to go. I would say it's completely the opposite. We know how
1: far Hale is going to go. One guy's,
0: one guy's a very clearly a mobster and a
1: monster. Oh sure, he's a mobster. I'm not talking about the audience perspective. I'm talking about the other characters' perspectives. Henry is wondering, you know, how much can he trust Jimmy?
0: Karen is wondering.
1: I mean, it's the it's the oh. crux of that scene. But that's We're at talking the end, Josh.
0: Only when their their relationship and the entire dynamic has changed. I, that's a very I'm, different thing. I'm just
1: saying I felt that sort of slipperiness of character made more sense in Goodfellas than it does here, where it seems more clear to me where people should know where everyone stands. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And I and to put a bow on it, I see the relationship to Goodfellas. I expressed it. I think it ends there. <laughs> I don't I don't think that the the nature of the films were we're really talking about. Two different beasts with two very different agendas despite that overlap. But obviously, a lot to dig into with Killers of the Flower Moon, which is out now in wide release. We'd love to hear your reactions to the film, your reactions to our review. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Okay, Josh, we've we've dragged this out long enough. <laughs> we've gone on talking long enough. We promise that we have chat a little bit about our Scorsese-ranked list. Now, I just noticed earlier tonight that my letterbox ranking of Scorsese's films, which is incomplete because I have blind spots, maybe six or seven of them. I just noticed that it's private. I don't know if people harangued me too much and I became embarrassed and I took my (laughs) list down, decided it was under construction. I don't know when I took it down. I definitely Mm. had comments. So it was live for a while, Mm. but at some point I made it private and decided I needed to rework it. And, and that's what I've got. I've got this sort of work in progress Scorsese list. And, I know roughly where I'm going to put Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't know that I feel great about it, but I know roughly where I'm going to put it. Where do you stand on it?
1: You had to take it back to to workshop, huh? Was, I did. Was, I did. <laughs> those letterbox commenters they can they can be brutal. No, they're generally very nice group of folks. Uh, mine is private too for different reasons. I, you know, I, I have this um, you know anal retentive uh-huh. need to see everything from a filmmaker at least features that they've directed before going public with my list. So I just started putting this together because we had talked about having this conversation and it is, I feel really solid about some of the films and where I have them and completely unsure about Mm -hmm. others. And that goes in both directions. I feel like I may be, rating some too high and some too low. So, so I don't know if we just want to like quickly run through our, our top five at this point and then touch on killers or however you want to do this, but yeah, very much
0: in flux, my list as it sounds as yours. Well, maybe give me a sense of what you have at least in your, in your top three slots. What do you rate as the best Scorsese right now? Sure.
1: I'm pretty settled on this. I revisited all of his gangster films before The Irishman, essentially, and and wrote a long piece, one of my favorite pieces I've ever done over at Think Christian, just about the mob rules of those movies. And so seeing Goodfellas for the umpteenth time for that made me feel quite confident it is his strongest film. I have it two, Raging Bull, and this one I have out of reverence. It's a movie I have not seen In a long time, but I know most people have it, not most people, many people have it as his best, you know, it's on a list of the best films of the eighties. If I see it again, would it drop? Probably not, but that's where it is now. King of comedy is one I've seen recently and probably that's why I have it so high at number three. It's maybe the least Scorsese Scorsese movie and its strength are its performances for me, De Niro and Jerry Lewis. Yet it does have some of the same concerns. Of course, it's his least aesthetically flashy probably, but man, did I love it. And I'm a sucker for cringe comedy. And this is cringe dramedy of the highest order, I would say.
0: So right now that's my top three. I love the king of comedy and I've got it at number nine which tells you the reverence I have for Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker. And this is a list, 24 films for me with, and maybe I've overlooked one or two over the years. Again, it's under construction. But I've got 24 films, counting Killers of the Flower Moon, and I have the little heart check next to all of them. Even the ones that I'm maybe only three stars on, I still like. So he hasn't made a bad movie, as far as I'm concerned. That's how hard it is to rank these films. I'm really shocked. First of all, I'm really shocked that we have the same two picks at the top, even though they're obvious. I still thought, Josh, you'd, you'd meander in some interesting oh, there's way. Some, there's some you, meandering to come. Well, you did that with your number three pick as good as the king of comedy is. I really thought, Oh man, are we going to have the top three that are the same? Because I'm shocked. Taxi driver wasn't three. Is it four? Oh, just wait. Oh man. <laughs> I thought you loved taxi driver. The last time we talked about it here. It's on the amazing. Show. Okay. Yeah. Well, I do have it at number three, but if I'm being totally honest with myself, and this is where I'll meander a little bit, my number four Scorsese movie might be my number three, and that's The Departed. Mm. So yeah, it's, that's where all will diverge a little that's, bit.
1: I think that's probably fairly unique as much, I don't know anyone who doesn't like it, but but yeah, to put yeah. it that
0: high is, is something. Okay, so then we we've heard our top three or four. I want to hear where you have or where you think you're going to place Killers of the Flower Moon? Yeah, Killers right now is at seven. And to your point, that is
1: no slight on it. I think, you know, if there are any qualms I voiced in our review are just that, qualms, and maybe those are the things that help me when it comes to a ranking, right? It's like, well, I did did wonder about that, or that did give me pause, so maybe
0: I can feel good about putting it at seven. You have it higher or lower? Okay, right now... I know for sure that at minimum, it's going at 10. Okay. And that's because I know that I like it more than The Last Temptation of Christ, which is currently 10. Mm. I know I like it more than Hugo, which is currently 11. Mm. But this is also not accounting for the fact that I somehow had The Last Waltz at 12. And The Last Waltz may need to be in the top 10 somewhere. So for me right now, it's for sure at least at 10. But Josh, I'm just not totally ready to decide whether or not it belongs ahead of The King of Comedy, The Color of Money, The Irishman, The Wolf of Wall Street, Mean Streets. Now, I know you're fine with kicking the Wolf of Wall Street out of there, but I know you're a fan of all the other films. Yeah. So I've got Irishman how do you rank Ahead them? of
1: Killers. I've got Irishman Ahead of Killers, just as um, <sighs> it was just such an elegy for that. Genre he
0: created I know. that I can't. I think I still have it up ahead of it, too.
1: Yeah, it's just I think it's going to stand stand apart for me. Color of Money, you'll be relieved to hear, landed right after Killers right now, uh, after this first time watch the last week or so at number eight. So, I love it. And not to throw shade That's at where your Departed I it. pick, Departed is number nine for me. So, yeah, this is really hard to do. And maybe at some point we'll become completists and we can really hash this out.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Let's end here, though. what are your meanderings? What's your one or two big surprises? Uh, I know I know you have bringing out the dead in your yeah, top ten.
1: that's it. that that's the oh top ten. This is and this is the one that I will stand by after revisits, including, as you said, our taxi driver, sacred Kyle review of not too long ago. I love bringing out the dead as an echo from a filmmaker at a more, I'm going to use this word, though it's not the exact one, mature stage of his career and echo to taxi driver. And so I have four Mm -hmm. bringing out the dead, five taxi driver.
0: Top five. Okay.
1: I do appreciate it. And I purposely put those together because I do appreciate it as... As this reconsideration, I really think it's a reconsideration of Taxi Driver. You know, it couldn't exist without Taxi Driver, so maybe this is not fair at all to put it ahead of it. But I love the way that film is made, how it moves, what it's interested in, just on its own qualities, the Nicolas Cage performance. Mm -hmm. And then when I hold it up next to Taxi Driver and see what it's doing alongside it, I, I just I've got it that high. I know
0: it's I'm a weirdo that way. Only saw it once in the theater when it came out, really dug it. But I still have it at 19 on my Scorsese list, Josh, because that's how good he is. I think my big surprise would just be that I have second from the bottom. And again, I like all of these films, but second from the bottom is Casino. Hmm. Still only seen it the one time in 1995 in the theater. Couldn't have been more excited to see it. You have to keep in mind in 1995, I had actually just watched Goodfellas for the first sure, time right. within the previous, like, two years. So this is all really fresh for me. And I know it's unfair. I know it's stupid. And I shouldn't even say it out loud, probably. But for me at that time, and again, I have only seen it once, I thought, well, this is just, this is a re retelling, if you will, of Goodfellas. And I like Goodfellas so much better. Yeah, These characters annoy me more. I don't like it it's the knee jerk response
1: but it's not the entirely incorrect one having just rewatched it recently it's 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 a film that's better than that but as i said when i was talking about goodfellas and killers of the flower moon in comparison like anything compared to good goodfellas is going to fall a little bit short the fact that scorsese you know had the temerity to even try to do something like that again is is something you sort of have to admire even if you acknowledge
0: yeah it's it'll never be a goodfellas We'd love to know what are the meanderings from your Marty Scorsese list and where you would put Killers of the Flower Moon. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us
1: on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on film. The current FilmSpotting poll has us looking ahead to Sofia Coppola's latest, Priscilla. We're asking, what is Coppola's best, 2003's Lost in Translation or something else? For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can also support Film Spotting by joining the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as 5 bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. You can get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive.
0: Speaking of that Film Spotting archive, lots of Martin Scorsese. In it, as you would imagine, reviews of every new feature of his except Silence going back to 2006, and that was really just a casualty of it coming out around Christmas in 2016. We sometimes do overlook major movies as we're in our rush to get to our top 10 films of the year. But quickly, Josh, 937, we talked last waltz, 909, Mean Streets turning 50, Taxi Driver, seven from 76, that's episode 816, The Irishman was episode 751. Our infamous battle over the Wolf of Wall Street, 474, reviewed Hugo on 375. Taxi Driver was talked about previously with Dana Stevens and myself upon its 35th anniversary, along with our top five De Niro scenes. That's episode 341. Mean Streets was talked about previously as well as part of a new Hollywood marathon that myself and Maddie did. And yeah, we even talked about Shine a Light, his Rolling Stones documentary that's okay. I've got that at the bottom of my Scorsese list behind Casino as episode 205. We do encourage you to check out listener Bill McLaughlin's invaluable letterbox list, the film spotting guide to the archives. Literally every movie we've ever talked about, you can find it there and it will tell you what episodes we talked about it on. Even if it just made a top five list, we will link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. That is filmspottingfamily.com for all your membership needs. Streaming, you can see Fingernails starring Riz Ahmed and Jesse Buckley. That may get some time on next week's show. You can see it on Apple TV Plus starting this weekend. Wide release. I can't believe my kids haven't bugged me yet, Josh, about seeing Five Nights at Freddy's. You can also see Freelance with John Cena as an ex-Special Forces operative who takes a job as protection for Allison Breeze, journalists when she interviews a ruthless dictator. Comes to us from the director of Taken. Of course it does. Next week, in addition to a few minutes on fingernails, we hope, and a recommendation, it sounds like, from Josh on A24's new All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt. Definitely. We will also talk about the palm door winning anatomy of a fall. Film spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van
1: Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
0: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.